Hello, friends. My name is Steve, and I'm here today with Noel Zamat, author of The Archer's Thread. Noel, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Steve. It's great to be here. Really yeah. appreciate it. Of course, thanks for accepting the invitation and making some time. I know you're busy, so I appreciate you taking the time to chat. Absolutely, but uh, we, we do what we must for fellow mountain bikers. So. <laughs> exactly. I do have lots of mountain biking questions for you to come. So. Awesome. <laughs> I, I don't have very many friends who mountain bike, so whenever I find someone who does, it's, I have to harass them with a bunch of questions and you know, no, that more was, stories. Uh, it's true, and uh, when I saw your bio and I looked at you were a writer and a booktuber who mountain biked, I thought this was, we, we are destined to meet. So hopefully it won't be in virtual world uh, solely and at some point we can meet on the trail. Yeah. That was that, one of my questions is, uh, you know, when can we go for a ride? That'd be fun. So, Let's go. Yeah, Continental divide sure. route. Let's go. I've actually, been th I've thought about doing that. I wanted to do that. Um, I wanted to take that all the way from South, one of, one of the directions, but I thought about doing that. The, the ultimate goal is to ride from the West coast to the East coast, but that, that takes a while. That, that would take a while. At least you're doing it in the right direction, right? Prevailing winds and all that. Yeah. I ended up doing the uh, parts of the Continental Divide Trail, a very short one, with a friend of mine. And it's incredible. It, it really yeah. is amazing. Yeah. Southern part of Colorado, just beautiful weather, lots of altitude, lots of descent, shuttled, obviously. But if anybody who can do that unsupported from, which a lot of people have done from Canada all the way down, that definitely, I tip my hat to them, but the route is just stunningly, desolately beautiful. So highly recommend it. Oh, no, I have, no, that's going to move up my list now to, yeah. to plan for that. Definitely. Absolutely. So I do want to talk to you about the Archer's Threat. Uh, so what is the book about? What, what were your inspirations for it? What if you could see 10 seconds into the future? And I'll let that sit for a little bit. The first time I asked somebody that question, they just looked at me and said, oh, who cares? Actually, it was my kids. I asked that question. This this came from a dinner conversation we had many years ago. We have, I think, uh, spirited dinner conversations when they were living with us. Now they've flown the nest. But uh, I thought a lot about it a lot. And I realized, you know, if you could see into the future, you would be the most dangerous person on earth. And of course, that's a uh, and when you think about it, it's true. You could uh, anticipate anybody. You would be bored because you could, uh, you would know what everybody else does. But it's just, uh, it's a trope to just have a meteorite or spider bite or beetle bite or whatever give you that type of skill. So, uh, as usual, you thought, what would an imperfect person do with that gift? And very quickly, it turned into a mess that I realized I wanted to write. And then a few years later, I was in, I was serving in Puerto Rico, actually, which is where I'm from, mm -hmm. in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria. We were doing some economic development, power restoration work, and happened upon, rediscovered a love of, of mathematics in the few hours mm -hmm. of electricity we had every night. And I started watching a bunch of documentaries online and uh, those things put together, believe it or not, was the seed of the, the conflict or the relationship in the book. And from there, it took off. I borrowed a lot from personal experience in uh, the military and some communities, 
uh, and in the international community, and it just started flowing. And when COVID hit, I realized that I had a lot of time on my hands, and I rediscovered the flow of writing that I think I hadn't really felt since college. So there you have it. Wow. So, so you wrote in college, did you have the, the bug to write all these years and you just had the idea and that you ran with it? Or was it something that um, you just kind of didn't think about writing for a long time? I, I've had journals. I have a box full of journals that I've been writing longhand with Fount Pen and more for years. Mm. And in college, interesting, I was having this discussion with my nephew the other day. He read the book and he goes, I'd love to write a book myself. And I go, that's wonderful. So we started talking a little bit about what to write. And I told him a story. Uh, when I was in college, I was taking a junior level class in fiction, but it was more lit fic, literary fiction. And it was, I produced what can arguably be the worst piece of writing that humanity has seen in the last 200 years. It was absolutely horrid. Uh, the, 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 you know, back in the days when uh, teachers would write comments in red ink and I could barely see the font because of all the red ink on the page. And, and it was horrific. Thank goodness it was the first assignment for that class. So I quickly transferred. And the one class that I could get into was a class on science fiction writing led by mm -hmm. a certain Joe Haldeman, who wrote this little book called The Forever War. You may have heard about it, won the Hugo, the Nebula. He is the man, the myth, the legend. And I realized about two weeks into that class that when you write about something that you are passionate about, suddenly words come up. So write mm -hmm. about what you love, not about what somebody assigned to you. And my greatest uh, feat to that point in writing was that I did well enough in the class that uh, Joe Haldeman selected about six students to actually take an invitation only course the following year. And actually, I think this was my senior year, I'm sorry. So I got into Joe Haldeman's class by invitation only because of the quality of writing, which at that point I considered really the high water of my life. Unfortunately, I couldn't go because I had a date to go to graduate school and afterwards to go to flight school for the Air Force. And for decades that remained the greatest regret my artistic side uh, and just recently i reconnected with him so we'll see where that goes oh so you you have reconnected then I, I did i actually was looking in my paperwork and i found the little paperwork where he printed out a little very funny cartoon of a fish and it was a jaws riff and dun 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 and the names of all the students that he'd selected and he was the big shark that was going to come and make our lives miserable for the next semester uh, and said, congratulations, you know, you were one of six people, whatever, selected for the next year's course. And I knew I couldn't go. I told them, but I kept that piece of paper. I think I've lost everything else from college, from university, but I kept that piece of paper. And I found mm -hmm. it. And I found the, the last thing he graded. And I said, Mr. Haldeman, I don't know if you remember me, but I was your student. I won't tell you how many years ago. And uh, he was extremely gracious and said, I'd love to reconnect. So. We're in the business of trying to do that. Be safe wow, with COVID and everything. Yeah, that's awesome. So, so what, what are your what are your plans to when you do reconnect? What's the plan? What's uh, what what's do you? Mean? I have no idea. That's a great question. What do you tell a guy who's won everything? You know, who is who is immortal in the world of science fiction? Uh, 
I, I even told him, I said, I haven't had a chance to read everything you've written, I've re but everything I've read, I love. Uh, and as a matter of fact, you know, you, you, you pattern yourself on your mentors and those who, who really impacted you. So I'm, I'm sure that somewhere in my writing, he's going to go, wait a second. I remember that. Uh, but I don't know what to do. You know, it's, it's, I think I'll be a complete goofball. Uh, it seems so improper and presumptuous to take any of my writing and say, here, thank you. Uh, I'd just like to listen to him and see how his life was been. I remember this is a million years ago, but I wrote a story about, a. a lot of the assignments were very short stories. And in that amount of time you're supposed to get you know, develop a character, develop a world, develop a conflict, develop a, you know, a, a, a scheme, an order, a, a, a structure of that civilization. I thought that, you know, the assignments were wonderful. And I remember one that I wrote, and it was a, a futuristic version of the Tour de France where people on this team are riding, but they've been genetically enhanced. This is predated the doping years and the doping scandals and all that. <laughs> but they were so genetically enhanced that they're going at speeds, human powered speeds, that if you fall, you're essentially dead. And the, the whole the five pages I developed that this guy, a veteran on the team, is taking a pull on the front. You know how it is when you draft on a bike and some kid takes a, a huge fall. And, you know, there's sparks and screaming in the headpiece and in the earpiece and the whole nine yards. And, and he doesn't know until he gets to the end and the kid's all right, but blah, blah, blah. And uh, it, was, it was just a, a short piece. And I remember he uh, sort of jokingly afterwards, because, you know, you're going to get a good marks on this one because you discovered. And it turns out that Joe Haldeman is an avid cyclist. And he has been for mm -hmm. years, decades. He's, him and his wife do a lot of writing uh, whenever they're up at MIT, which is uh, where, where we met, uh, or down in Gainesville, which is where he resides the rest of the time. And I had no idea. So, but as they say in flying, rather be lucky than good. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's great. That's, that's great to hear. That's a good story about uh, being able to reconnect is the best part because yes. the odds of that are probably pretty slim, I would guess. I think they are, you know, especially with somebody who's, who's at a, not only talented, but well-regarded. The man must get uh, a lot of spam and a lot of crazy requests from a lot of people. So I just feel very humbled that he took the time to answer a crazy email from a long lost student. No? Wow, that's great. That's pretty fun. That's awesome. So have you planned on, on any questions to ask him or any tips or? You know, uh, I think it's one of those where you, I'll answer that with another story. Okay. Um, this has nothing to do with anything, but it's, uh, I think, uh, I think the threads will connect, so to speak. Uh, some time ago, did you ever watch uh, Man of Steel, the movie? Yes. Okay. So Man of Steel, part of it uh, was filmed at Edwards Air Force Base, where we were stationed when I was I think it was my last flying assignment. And they were filming the movie. Uh, we, that would happen often, you know, because it's, I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's, it looks like a Martian base in the middle of nowhere. It's, it's in the middle of the desert. It's on this massive dry lake bed. And you drive for 18 miles through the, the desert. There's absolutely nothing. And then all of a sudden, ta-da, you're here. Uh, they filmed scenes for Iron Man and uh, Armageddon, uh, a lot of places. This year was Man of Steel. And, uh, 
we were allowed to sit in one of the airplanes that's used as a prop to view a take uh, where Henry Cavill playing Superman is doing something and we had to be very quiet. We could move around, you know, they sort of edited out the windows and all that. But Amy Adams, Lois Lane, uh, came out and wanted to meet the people. Very gracious, hmm. wonderful person. And she said, you know, thank you. She just wanted to thank everybody for allowing us to shoot on a base. You know, we're, we're there at Actually, our job is to make their job easy. You know, this is, uh, we, we took a little bit of time out of our daily flying operations. Uh, there's an office in the Air Force that essentially coordinates with Hollywood, which is pretty interesting to make sure mm. that things are accurate and well presented and all that. You know, they just want it to be correct. <clears throat> and she was just very gracious, wanted to, to say thanks to everybody. And uh, I had a coin from our unit, which is a pretty, uh, pretty significant thing to give somebody a coin. Uh, you normally give it to people who you know, come visit, dignitaries, people who win awards, people who've done a really good job. And getting a coin from a, a sitting commander is in, in the military a pretty significant tradition. So I brought a coin and it, the numbers on the coin, the serial number on the coin had actually something to do with her birth date. I forget what it was. <clears throat> but uh, I said, Miss Adams, you know, I'd like to give you a coin. First off, she'd never been, the term we use is coined, so she'd never received one. And I had no idea what to say. You know, you're, you're talking to this accomplished actress and who was playing low side in this super cool movie and all that. And I'm just like, uh, I have no idea what to tell you. But it turned out to be a really nice thing because all we could talk about is why is this important? Hmm. You know, what is this little round metal object that you have and why is it such a big deal? And I explained to her and she was really interested in finding out and, and that devolved into a discussion on you know, a quick discussion because she had to go, but, uh, you know, her agent was there, her binders, and she's like, wow, this is really interesting. Tell me about all these, uh, all these traditions that you guys have. And the long answer is, what am I going to talk to Joe Haldeman about? I have no idea. Maybe I'll give him a coin or I'll show him something, but I'm more interested in where the conversation goes, what he'll have to say, what is in his mind that he may think is at all interesting about this crazy life that we've let apart for 30 years and now we're reconnected at different stages in our life. Mm. I probably did not answer your question, but that's, uh, instead of asking, uh, you know, what will I ask him? I just would love to hear him talk. No, that's a great answer. That's pretty much my mindset is going into <laughs> things like this is just, I just want to hear, hear my, you know, whoever I'm talking to, I want to hear them talk and yeah. they're interesting. So that's, and you, those moments you can turn into teaching moments and you, you did teach in the air force at the, um, test pilot school. So I know you have some experience of teaching and those, those teaching moments, you, I think not everyone, not everyone recognizes those moments that you can turn into a teach a, a moment that you can teach someone something. So that's, I think those are important moments that you should take advantage of. Yeah, absolutely true. Absolutely true. It was, uh, it, it reminds me actually of a funny story about, flying when I was at a called TPS, the test ball school, everything's an acronym in the military. So if I say an acronym, stop me right there and say, what does that mean? But we were talking about, um, you know, where, when airplanes fly, an airplane can go nose up and down, it can roll its wings, or it can actually go side to side and go into the wind. And each one of those has a different mathematical expression that uh, I went through the school when I was young, and all our students have to essentially learn. And it's not like you're figuring out on the air, but 
there's a couple of things that you can do if the airplane gets into weird situations where knowing that that's how the airplane behaves can actually save you. And uh, I remember going, you know, I believe in uh, the concept of uh, leadership by walking around. <clears throat> so I made it a point to not be in my office and walk around the building, go to the flight line, see people in the jets, see people. Uh, the test pilot school is, I always told people, it's kind of like being the dean of an engineering school, uh, the commander of a fighter squadron, and the owner of a monster garage all in one because you're doing those things on a, on a daily basis. And I went into one of the classrooms in a during a break, only about you know five or six were there. The other folks were doing uh, data analysis, or they were out on the flight line, or they were doing the myriad things that students do. And uh, we started talking about uh, this situation that I had right after I came out of the school many years prior, and uh, how we got out of it. And uh, at the end, I realized that the, the audience had doubled in size. And uh, well, that's pretty interesting because I was just telling a story, but this is how humans communicate. This is why I think writing is so so close to all of us. And even if we don't acknowledge it, because that's how we transfer wisdom and knowledge, right? It's by telling stories. It's, it's being around the campfire, you know, in a cold night in the middle of nowhere. And that story binds you together. And here we were in a much different environment, but still telling a story. And I took the opportunity to say, well, let me at least talk a little bit about why this matters. And I explained, uh, explained in terms of something I'm not going to get into, but it's called st stability derivatives. You know, it's a, it's a why it is that these motions of the aircraft were unexpected at the time and what we did about it. And it was really interesting because the bell rang, you know, things are, people are going back. And one of the guys whole, literally grabs me by the flight suit as we're leaving. And he says, can you come back and tell us more stories? Mm. And I was a little shocked. I, I was like, you know, you're trying to butter me up. You know, it's like, I'm the old man and you're trying to just uh, be nice. And, and he said, no, actually, you know, everybody was like enjoying that. This is why we're here. It's not to learn a bunch of math and maneuvers and it's to learn why this matters hmm. and I, I always remember that that's it's your comment about the teaching moment i think is very appropriate and it's because i always think of the why why is it that we're telling these stories what's the why behind it and uh once you understand that or maybe discover it then i think wonderful things come up it's a great point it's a really good point Never thought of it that way, but that's that's very true. Yeah, and I'm I'm always curious with science fiction, especially seems like a, a genre to write in that you have there's a lot of rules and a lot of things that you have to consider going into the story to not you know kind of cheat because I think in in time in stories with time or time manipulation or time travel there's a lot of a lot of ways you can kind of skirt by your own rules. So were there certain rules that you put into the story that you wouldn't break? That's a great question. I just found out that what I wrote, which I call a thriller, some people would actually call soft science fiction, which at the time I thought, well, what do you mean? And I think what, what it meant is that the technology and the science is not the protagonist. I think in hard science fiction, the extrapolation of something that is possible 
physically possible by the laws of physics uh, is really the hallmark of hard science fiction. And the characters and story may take a back seat to that. You know, they're part of the tableau, but they're not they're not the lead part. In soft science fiction, apparently, it's the the character's arc is primary, and then you just use it's kind of like magical realism. There's there's artifacts in the story that you sort of make up. On mine, I made it a point, and that's actually an arc in the three books. There is absolutely nothing in the books that is not possible now. The only mm. jump is that it would be whatever that skill is, is actually present in a human being. But for example, you have a cell phone, right? So you can predict the weather tomorrow. You can also get many apps that'll tell you what the stock price of anything is gonna be in, in a day or so within some uh, you know, error. Uh, you have a phone that'll tell you what the traffic is gonna be somewhere in a couple of minutes from now. Uh, you know, We have that, we have airplanes that uh, have autopilots that can basically guide you through turbulence or what have you. So all these things exist. They exist on your phone right now. The only thing I did was basically say, what if, what if a human could have that? And I actually, there's a scene in the book where two of the, of the supporting characters find out why this guy has a skill. So it turns out that it's not magical. It's not a, you know, it's not some artifact. It's something that could actually be pretty reasonable. And I even cite current works, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow by Danny Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize in economics, of all things, is actually part of how this man, this guy, the protagonist, Simon Lyons, can actually see 10 seconds into the future. And it turns out that that little tiny change really affects everything else. Hmm. Isn't it amazing that we have in our pockets what used to be in whole rooms full of, you know, just computers wall to wall, and now we just put it in our pocket and carry it around. Isn't it amazing? It is amazing and it is terrifying. And that's actually a big theme in the rest of the books. There's uh, one of the, the antagonists. Uh, there's a scene in the book where he starts talking about, you know, he looked at his phone and he went, you know, people don't know this, but this is the most efficient manipulation machine that has been ever created by human hands or human thought. And the ease by which we can find out what anybody on the globe is doing uh, is is horrifying. And that's actually a big part of you know, how the lead character in this book and in the two subsequent ones get into significant trouble and how the antagonist essentially hunts him down. There is really, unfortunately, nothing in my books that is not possible, that is impossible through current technology. And the more I research, particularly for the second one, where you start, you know, you start making the, you have the hero's arc for each volume, but you also have the hero's journey for the entirety of the arc. And that's where I'm at right now, book two. And much to my surprise and, and terror, I realized that the horror stories that I was envisioning for my characters to overcome are essentially what some computer scientists and and uh, artificial intelligence researchers are expecting in the next five years, which means I better hurry up and publish this book before it becomes historic. <laughs> yeah, that insane. is terrifying. Yeah, it is. And do, do you see that trend? Because I, I think we've we've come so far with technology that can, 
Can we ever walk it back? Can or people would people be willing to give up the conveniences that we have with technology to walk that back? That's a really good question. I think the answer that I'm finding in the research is uh, probably not. Hmm. You know, um, a great example that a lot of people give is a car, for example. When cars first started, people were going, oh, you know, it's uh, why would anybody want that? Because we have a horse, you know, you're going to have to get gas and, you know, I have hay for the horse. Well, it turns out it's a lot easier right now to find gas for a car than it is hay for a horse. So the whole infrastructure changed. So that's one. You can't really go back and go to a world where you don't imagine going to the bank for any transaction you have instead of doing it on your phone your life would probably grind to a halt because there's so many other demands on your time that this convenience allows. Hmm. Um, but what's interesting is that horses didn't necessarily go away. They're just in a completely different role now. And for a while we had horse racing because, well, we had horses and they used to carry things. Now we race them and now we sort of don't except for three times a year in these races but that that industry has really transformed itself but more and pre more people buy horses to do things that 150 70 years ago they didn't buy horses for you know you bought horses back in those days like you go to i don't know home depot for tools uh, and it was a tool means to an end now it's well i have a horse because i have a lot of land and i want to do show jumping or what have you so the same tool, the same thing is now completely changed. Because of that, can we get rid of cars and go back to horses? The answer is probably not. What will change is that cars will now probably not be, you know, the, the future points in this direction. They're not going to be running on fossil fuels, but rather on some sort of renewable energy, batteries, you know, solar, whatever it may be. And that's, I think, where we are with these devices. Hmm. As terrifying as they are, I don't think we can really go back. The best we can do is try to point them in the right direction. And I was hmm. surprised to find out that in the realm of AI, a big area right now is AI safety. How do you ensure that you create an AI that is not going to be dangerous. And that is a topic of discussion that six months ago, I didn't even know existed. And as they say, now I can't live without it, so. Hmm. It, it is very interesting. The AI discussion is scary and fascinating at the same time. It is, it's a, you know, when I read this book, uh, Life 3.0 by this uh, guy from MIT as well, uh, Max Tegmark. And the whole concept of the book, the whole point of life 3.0 is that life 1.0 is life that had to evolve its hardware and software. So how it thought or reacted to the environment had to evolve much like its physical structure. We are life 2.0 in that we can't grow wings, we can't grow gills or anything, but we can educate ourselves. So our software is something that we control. Uh, we can learn languages, we can learn skills, we can tell stories. That's actually how we transmit a lot of these. But we can't do much in our timeline about our physical structure. And he says that life 3.0, his thesis is life 3.0 is essentially life that can do both of those on their own, at their own free will, so to speak. So 
uh, computers can reprogram themselves. We see that all the time. We see that in AIs. We see that in, you know, uh, you're, you're going to, I don't know, Starbucks and there's a traffic jam. Your computer automatically reroutes you or you get a software update. And those that's the software. When we get to the point where those that software can actually change the actual hardware that it's running on, uh, that'll be like 3.0. And just like there was life on planet Earth for billions of years, but it was very, very simple. And it wasn't until we came along and essentially dominated the planet in a very short time compared to that long timeline, he's saying that the same will happen with this life. It is going to be, happen on a timeline that for us is going to look like an explosion. It's going to be literally overnight. That, you know, I think there's a lot of folks who may disagree with that, but I think the concept, just thinking about that alone, is very, very interesting. And you know, the arc on my books is what do humans do? What do highly imperfect humans do in the face of something so relentless? The answer is I don't think anybody knows. No, I hope we don't find out. But yeah, <laughs> hope it reminds in the in the realm of fiction. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't look. I'd rather not experience Skynet, but you know. Yeah, that's uh, and and he has a number of scenarios on on the in the book where, you know, he doesn't call it Skynet, but that is one of them. You know, what if we don't pay attention to this? To me, the most interesting one is what if we basically say we'll never get this genie to stay in the bottle. Let's just get another genie to make sure that that one doesn't get too powerful. Mm -hmm. And you now have what I believe he calls it the gatekeeper concept. And I thought that was I'm, I'm in the middle of doing research on that as well. Wow. Interesting to look that up when we're done here. Yeah. And, you know, I, I wondered with, with your experience in the military and how did that, how did those experiences help you write action scenes? Um, we have a saying that, uh, you know, in combat, the hard things are easy and the easy things are hard. Uh, I remember being in combat. Uh, I flew airplanes, by the way. I flew bombers. Uh, I'm not going to tell you how old I am. I'm just chronologically enhanced. I'm not old. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. Like but, that. uh. I, I uh, remember my job in a multi-place aircraft was essentially to make sure that we came back alive. I, I had all the goodies to jam the bad guys and chaff flares, all that good stuff. And there was one mission. This was many, 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 many years ago. Uh, and we had uh, what we believed was a SAM coming our way, a surface-to-air missile. Uh, the thing locked on us, and we are... There's only one thing to do at that time, and the computers take care of a lot of the things, but you can actually select the right type and quantity and program and sequence of expendables to hide the airplane. And I will forever remember this because the distance from my hand to the panel that had the button was about a foot, and it took a year for my hand to move that distance. And it, it was just insane how slow everything gets. That was an easy thing that became very, very hard. There was another time when we were jumped by 
uh, a bad guy and we had to come up with an alternate target and a way to get away from them without a lot of our systems working. We'll go into too much of the story. And we essentially replanned a mission, uh, went low altitude and evaded two guys in probably 180 seconds. Wow. And it was all completely based on training. And that's one where the hard things are easy. So that experience, that, you know, the question was, how did that influence the writing? I have been in other situations where the terror of, you know, bullets whizzing by or the terror of not knowing what's behind the next corner, but you're sweating, your heart is pumping, you can barely see through, through the, you know, the, the tunnel vision that you have really prevents you from really considering much of it. And things that appear very obvious are sometimes just very hard to address. But somehow you always remember something that was just blasted into your brain through training. And the last scene, one of the last scenes in the book is a shootout. And I had a, a couple of readers come back and say, <clears throat> that was terrifying. I, I was reading through that and I could not stop. And, and they actually asked me a couple of questions. Oh, that was on that page. It says, oh, I completely went past it because I was so engrossed with getting to the end. I had to know. And, and a couple of them said, I thought it was great that he got hurt during the scene, that the main character, you know, spoiler alert, he survives because there's a book two. But how he survives is not, a, not necessarily pretty. And what he realizes he has to do to survive if people were not shooting at him would be pretty easy to figure out but it's something that in the middle of blinding pain and terror and all that you you really can't and i just wrote that you know it just came out when i was writing it just it was you know you're in flow when you're writing something good this one was just i just emptying my soul of you know, trying to remember all these terrifying times that I was just convinced that I was not going to come back. And, and it was well received. And, and I, I, it's, you know, it's one of the greatest accolades I can get from a reader. Somebody says, I just, how did you do that? How did you, you know, the, the few thoughts that he had were so difficult to come through but I realized that if I was in that same situation, that's what would happen. And, you know, I just, that was, that was very gratifying to hear that feedback. Hmm. It almost sounds like what most people, what some people would describe as like a runner's high when you're writing or when you're doing, a, when you're in the middle of something, you just kind of, you find your flow and you it's just flow. It is it. flow. Yeah. And flow is the, I heard somebody define flow as a, that state of mind where you completely lose track, you, you are actually unable to uh, focus on or conceive of time passing. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're, you know, you just exist. There's no TikTok. There's no nothing. It's just you are in this. Uh, and I've experienced that writing this book and, and writing uh, the second one. Uh, I remember one time I was, uh, my wife was gone. She was, she was flying for the airlines at the time. And, uh, it was me and the dog, and uh, I stood up to write a page, and I looked up, and it was three hours later. And I was writing at our kitchen, standing up for three hours, 
and I had no idea how much time had passed. And and I think most people would go, "You poor guy," you know, that's yeah. that must suck. But in reality, it was I remember it distinctly because I had no idea. I was just so engrossed in the story and in the act of writing, in that creative outlet. And I think uh, many writers know what that feels like, and that's what keeps them coming back. Hmm. That's uh, yeah. That's really that's those are those special moments that like those natural highs almost. Absolutely. And a, a lot of the reviews I've read for the book, uh, a lot of them are, I couldn't put it down. It was, I mean, my, my heart was pounding. I couldn't, I lost a lot of sleep reading this book. And with a thriller, with a, a book like this, I think timing is really important to, to have the timing right for books like this. So are there certain things that you do to get that timing, that pacing down to keep the reader engaged throughout the story? That's a great question. A couple of things, and they they come not necessarily from a from a conscious, you know, this is what the book says about writing books, but rather how you think and how you would imagine a, a reader would be engaged. So the first one is I will not be accused of writing literary fiction. My descriptions are Spartan. Uh, they are what is needed to set the tone because I'd like to focus on actionable dialogue and descriptive action. So instead of going on about uh, the environment and I've, I've, you know, fellow authors and, and beta readers have told me about this. And when I explained it, they go, you know, it works. Uh, I'm, I'm not here to read uh, Faulkner. Um, I'm here to read about, you know, relative <laughs> part one. <clears throat> but I think another one is just Every scene needs to have a purpose. And you don't need to tell the reader what that purpose is, but every scene needs to have a purpose. I think if you keep that in mind, you know that every scene has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Every mini, every scene has its own either tiny bit of conflict or tiny bit of resolution. And you try to write it so that the end has another question. There's one scene where... Uh, the understudy you later found out is uh, an understudy of the main character. They finally find out where he is and the scene ends uh, with her basically high-fiving everybody on the team, uh, going into the bathroom in the hotel that they're all staying at, locking the door and crying. And I, I had a lot of people come up and said, especially when I was doling the book out, you know, to, to beta readers a chapter of time and I was working and you know, probably not the best way to do uh, on the fly editing, but Hey, uh, and people were just coming back and said, you can't do this to me. What do you mean? He says, I want to know why. And I, I thought I said, that's, that's really, that's it. You know, that's, if you end each scene with, I want to know why this happened. Uh, you're probably, you're probably keeping that pot boiling and, and the reader engaged. And I think I, we owe it to the reader to, to want to come back and say, okay, I can't put this down. I, I, I need to know the resolution to that question, that conflict, that, that thread. And with beta readers, um, what questions do you ask them? What what type of feedback are you looking from beta, looking for from beta readers? I will tell you that uh, I have yet to fully appreciate, uh, take advantage of. Take advantage of is a terrible term. Uh, <laughs> I have yet to 
fully realize the potential of beta readers. And I only say that because I've been super fortunate to have just incredibly generous beta readers for all the works that, that I'm doing. So whereas I think authors at different stages in their career will have a more polished request for beta readers, I'm usually asking for almost like a like an early developmental edit look. Does this plot make sense? Does this character arc make sense? Does the interaction between these characters make sense? I can worry about the dialogue later, about some of the descriptions, about some of the specifics on the plot, but does this story as a whole make sense? And, and that has been, I, I can tell you, the books are far better than far, far, far better than they would have been had I not included the insight and wisdom of these fellow writers uh, in the book. Uh, mm -hmm. One silly one, uh, this lady that we're in the same uh, writers group right now, we review each other's writing and she says, hey, I'd love to read uh, you know, the first part of your new book. So with much trepidation, I said, you know, this is not yet done, but here's uh, the first third, you know, it's three acts, here's act one. Uh, she went through it, she had a lot of good comments and she asked me one question that I had not thought about at all. And it had to do with, would these two people know each other? And I just went, oh my goodness, that's a BFO, a blinding flash of the obvious. I cannot believe I missed that. But it would have been horrifying to send that out into the wild to an editor who goes, Really, dude? I mean, come on. This is like, you know, elementary stuff. And and to have somebody that has that, uh, the skill and the talent to see that, that gap in your storyline in a really very preliminary work, I think is just uh, the very definition of talent. So I'm super hmm. thankful for him. Oh, wow. And for someone who's just getting started with their writing career or want to want to get a, a book published, if they came to you for advice or if someone has already come to you for advice, what, what advice would you give them? That's a great question. Somebody asked me that a couple of months ago. And I, I basically said, just open that laptop, you know, open that notebook and start writing. And if you don't know what to write about, write about the very act of writing. Hmm. I forget who said this, but I just read it. Uh, said, you know, to actually get to something good, you have to let the gates flow. You, you have to just start writing for something good to come out. You can't say, I'm gonna sit here and wait until I have this brilliant idea and then I'm gonna pick up the pen or the keyboard and start going. No, just go. And, and I have to remind myself of that because that's sort of how this all started. Um, many of the scenes in the book that I initially wrote are not in there because frankly, they were terrible and they did not add to the story, <laughs> but I would have never gotten to the scenes that we had now had I not started there and just let that, you know, open up those floodgates and out of those floodgates, uh, you know, out of that stream of consciousness, you'll find this gold nugget coming down the stream as you pan for your story. And that's what, where you go. So, the, the last thing is nobody knows about writing. You know, this is a, I'd like to think that I've had several careers. Uh, I'm, I'm fortunate in that in life. I guess I'm professional ADHD or whatever you call it. Uh, so I'm, I'm embarking on something where I can really borrow from a lot of 
things in my past. And the most important thing, I just read this book, it's called Range by David Epstein. It's fantastic. It's if you're not struggling, you're probably not going to learn. So the very mm -hmm. act that you're struggling with your writing is in the meta sense, a fantastic sign. If you sit there and go, oh, this is all well and great and nothing's happening, you know, and uh, then your, your writing is not going to be great. But if you struggle with getting something on the page and you overcome it and you find flow, that's really when things start happening. If you have no idea how to do marketing and you do something and all of a sudden, uh, the, you know, you get this blinding flesh of the obvious or this, you know, this, the heavens part law and, yeah. and good things happen, then you're doing it, but it won't happen just by sitting back and overthinking it. You have to go out there, make yourself vulnerable and fail. One of my favorite quotes and it's one that's got me through a lot of, uh, a lot of those times in life is without struggle, there is no progress. So close to what you were. Absolutely mentioning. true. Yep. Very true. And you mentioned your, your, uh, you've, you've had several careers and I wondered, I've, I've always wondered, about flying a plane. What is flying a plane like? What is what is that feeling of flying this piece of metal through the sky that can reach these insane speeds and do all these amazing things? What what is that feeling like? Uh, have you ever heard the song "Learning to Fly" by Pink Floyd? Yes. All right. So, <laughs> put your headphones on, blast that, uh, and you know, drive on a desert road somewhere and that's probably the closest you can get uh you know and, and at 1g as we say uh strangely enough although i flying was a, a big part of my career i never thought i would do it and uh and and i almost looked at it as a means to an end hmm. but i enjoyed it and i enjoyed it because of what in a way it meant to others. And that's sort of hard to explain, but a couple of quick stories. When I was young, going through the test pilot school as a student, the first time around, part of the curriculum, and we still keep this, is to fly a bunch of different airplanes. You get to a point in the curriculum about two thirds in, where now your job is basically to go out and, and find, uh, you know, let's fly, fly uh, a World War II era prop plane. Let's fly a glider. Let's fly all sorts of things because that gives you an appreciation of the differences in different airplanes. And in doing so, you'll be able to better identify things when the time really comes to, to do something that may be dangerous. And I remember flying with this old, strangely, I call him old because he was the age I was when I retired. So I guess I probably flew with somebody who considered me old and that's horrifying to even think about. But he said, I uh, said, uh, so what are you going to do uh, when you retire? You're going to, you know, gonna fly for the airlines. And he goes, Nope. Uh, when I retire, what I fly will either have an afterburner or no engine at all. So he was saying, you know, it's what I'm basically getting since there's no afterburners, uh, you know, you know, I don't know if you know what an afterburner is. It's, it's a, if you've ever seen pictures of fighters taken off the, you know, the, 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 the flame. plume on the back. Yep. It's a flame. And all you're, what you're basically doing is you're adding fuel to the back end of the, to the front of the combustion chamber after all the stuff is passed through the engine and you're reheating whatever air is left back there. So it is an enormously 
inefficient way to get thrust, but you get a lot of thrust. So you can, you know, t for takeoff or for air combat maneuvering, it's very important. And it's a kick in the pants. You know, you are, when you are taken off, you literally, uh, you know, your head slams back into the ejection seat. There's no afterburners in civilian flight. So he was basically saying, I'm gonna fly a glider. I'm like, hmm, that's, that's interesting, quaint interesting. And it wasn't until years later when I was now the commander of the test pilot school and I had to take people up on gliders, which was part of my job, that I realized what he meant. And there was one memorable time where we, there's several test pilot schools in the, on the planet, uh, two in the US, Air Force and Navy, and then there's a British one and a uh, French one. And we all get together every year to make sure that we're training our pilots and air crew and flight test engineers the, the same way. Uh, and this year just happened to be at California. We took the entire cohort soaring in one of the most beautiful places on earth to go soaring. And uh, I was flying with the, uh, the chief engineer of the French test pilot school. Mm. Uh, and we are flying around. We get pulled up to about 4,000 feet by a tow plane. And then you basically find a thermal and we found a thermal while the rest of the guys are coming up and uh, who else goes on thermals? Well, hawks and vultures and eagles. So we're in a thermal flying formation with eagles. Hmm. And it's one of the coolest things ever because you don't belong there, but you kind of belong there. And this guy is just, taking pictures and looking around and just having a fantastic time. We cannot land because the, the desert becomes so hot that there's all these updrafts and it's just taking you way high. We actually had to descend because we can't go high enough because we don't have any oxygen. And uh, normally these flights, you know, if they take you up and you fly down, it takes 20 minutes. Uh, I actually had to have them call back and say, we're trying to land, but it may be a little bit because what we call the lift was so good. And finally we land after an hour and 40 some odd minutes up in the air where every time we descended, we found another spot where eagles and vultures were soaring and, and we finally land. And this guy's flown a ton of stuff. He's been all over the place. I've known him for years. He's a great guy. And he just looks at me and says, no, that was just one of the most memorable experiences I will ever have. And that's when it hit me. That's flying. That's, you know, uh, the other one, uh, a silly story is uh, we have a parent's day for the parents of the students to come into the school. And I asked one of them before we all got together, I said, do you know what your daughter is doing at the schoolhouse? And the parents go, we have no idea. She never tells us anything. I go, really? It's like the coolest thing ever. She doesn't tell you what she does? No, no. Okay. So I get up there and I do my little spiel and I go, before we go too far, does anybody know what your sons and daughters are doing at the school? And like two people raise their hand. And I go, <laughs> okay. So, and this is exactly what I said. I said, <clears throat> Mother Nature a bunch of secrets in a very dangerous place that we call the sky. We are teaching your sons and daughters the language of mother nature so that they can go into the sky 
go to terms with mother, mother nature on her own terms, find her secrets, bring them back so that others may live. That is their job. That's my job. That's what we're doing here. Are there any questions? Every hand went up. And it was one of the most, I did not practice that. I had no idea I was ever going to say that, but it just came out. And you asked me, what is it like to fly? I think that's a part of it. I think it's just going into this environment that it is, you know, to, as I say, to an even greater extent than the sea, completely intolerant of mistake. But once you're there, you just cannot wait to get back. Hmm. Speaking of flying, I have a couple of, I'm not sure how much, uh, if you have any experiences with this or how much you can tell us about this, but about six months ago, there was a lot of the government finally acknowledged that there is these strange objects in the sky that we've known about for a while. Do, have you ever experienced anything strange in the sky? Um, I think I've been the cause more than anything else of strange <laughs> objects in the sky. Uh, you know, we used to fly airplanes at night with not a lot of lights in weird places, low to the ground. Uh, and these airplanes didn't look like typical stuff. Uh, you know, I remember we were testing the, the B2s, uh, flew those for a while uh, in the mountains at night to make sure that the bomber could actually maneuver close to the ground and, and fly and not crash into a terrain. And I know for a fact that people who were on the ground looking up at us probably went, oh my God, that's a UFO. <laughs> uh, most of the stuff I can tell you uh, that I have personally seen, um, you know, I can, I, can, I can explain away, so to speak. I can go, mm -hmm. yeah, that's, uh, that's probably what that is. I would say that technology has changed quite a bit and I have no doubt in an era of very sophisticated cyber warfare, uh, hypersonic weapons and crazy stuff like that, that there is stuff out there that we are unprepared to understand uh, with our own eyes. Other than that, you know, are there little green men somewhere in Nevada or, uh, you know, uh, in Arizona? I, I I really don't know. Are we alone in the universe? I think is a better question. I think the answer is heck no, but I think the distances are so extraordinary that uh, in our lifetime, we may never know, but who knows? That's what yeah. keeps it interesting, right? Exactly. And I did read in your bio that you had testified before Congress two times. What was that like to testify before Congress? That must have been an experience. <laughs> it was uh, It was one of the most... Uh, uncomfortable things I've had to do in my life. Uh, the first time more than the second. <clears throat> I was in this, I was born in Puerto Rico and the island, unfortunately, uh, through uh, some uh, years of, of uh, history, uh, uh, you know, it was well-documented, essentially went into bankruptcy. So I was asked to be part of the team, not that was going to renegotiate the debt, but rather to bring in additional investment. So my job was actually to bring in a lot of outside investment for critical infrastructure on the island. You mentioned that you are in critical infrastructure yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, you know how difficult it is to fund that. And, <laughs> you know, it's, you'd never have enough money. Uh, you know, states always have to issue bonds and things like that to get that, to get the capital in for that. So uh, Congress 
essentially made a law and they made a position, which was mine, to allow for private industry, private investors to contribute some of that. And during the aftermath of Hurricane Maria, we were asked to testify in Congress because there was some pretty significant delays with the rebuilding of the grid. Mm -hmm. uh, the first time was uncomfortable because it was really political theater uh, on on all sides. So I'm not going to you know say one way or another. It's just people have constituencies and those constituencies demand things, and sometimes you're the most convenient target. Quite honestly, the second one was a lot more interesting because by that point I had left public service, but I was still working to allow some processes to help the island out without going into too much detail. And I was asked to come back, but this time as a private citizen who had essentially taken a peek behind the curtain of what was really going on. And that second one was fascinating. Mm -hmm. uh, the same people, some of the same people who were almost antagonistic the first time were asking me very nuanced, very insightful questions, asking them on purpose to put them on the record so we could, you know, go back and, and talk about what had been done. So short answer, one of the most terrifying things I've ever done. Long <laughs> answer, a frustrating, maddening, but ultimately insightful and hopeful exposure to the innermost workings of American democracy. Hmm. Well, do you feel like it was productive? Uh, looking back at that experience, was was that time you spent testifying uh, productive? I think the time was productive. I think, um, <clears throat> you know, I discovered that uh, I have friends that have gone into public office and I admire them because it is a long game. Although the timelines that we have in the nation are politically arbitrarily short, you know, congressmen are elected to two year terms, uh, presidents are elected to four year terms, they can only run uh, twice. Most of the real important work actually takes decades. Mm -hmm. And to, to really have that follow through that presence of mind, that stick-to-itiveness, that grit to see these fundamentally good programs to their end and, and try to keep whatever shape you wanted from that policy intact until the time when it's actually implemented is an exercise in Solomonic patience. Um, I came from the military where we were basically expected to come up with pretty significant results. Every three years, when you become a senior officer, I was expected to essentially show up and in two years, make really significant changes. And you, in two years, you're basically six months to learn the job. You only have about a year to figure out what's going on. And then you spend the last six setting up for your successor. So you really only have about 18 months of, of, real meaty time to get stuff done and that timeline was really incompatible with with the timeline that is necessary for for and i'm not going to say political success because that's you know that's 
reeks of political party, but policy, civic success. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it, it, especially with government. Well, I, we, I've worked for the government now, but it, it, everything takes time. It's a big, okay. slow-moving giant that nothing happens quickly. So it's it must be really exactly. frustrating. Yep. Yeah. So it's hard to transition from something like that, but uh, I did read also in your bio that you are a coffee fan. I was wondering what your favorite types of uh, what types of coffee are, what your favorite brewing method may be. It's a you loaded to, question. Right? No, no, no. This is uh, I mean, you asked me some hard ones, but this uh, this may take the cake. Uh, <laughs> let's see. So I, I roast my own coffee. Of, uh, unfortunately, I even made a riff on the in the book. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but you go to a lot of places right now and they have uh, what they call full city roast. Have you roasted mm -hmm. coffee ever? Or, uh, I've tried. It didn't work out too well. All right. That's all right. Yeah. So coffee roasting in a nutshell is basically take these green beans, which look horrible and taste even worse. And uh, you roast them. And coffee has two milestones when it roasts. One is the first crack, aptly named, and it sounds like popcorn. And then the, the other one, uh, is the critical one. It's second crack, appropriately named, eponymously named, and it sounds like Rice Krispies. When you get to second crack, you have probably 15 seconds where you will go from, this is the best coffee I've ever had, to I will use this for charcoal for my barbecue. That's that's all the time you have. And you know it's it all comes down to those 15 seconds. A lot of the new coffee, I don't know why. I'm going to go on a tangent here. This is going to be bad. I probably nobody will ever buy my book again, but I will, I am going to declare right now that I cannot stand light roasted coffees. So a lot of folks are making that first roast and then stopping before second crack. And coming from Puerto Rico where that coffee was flavorful and rich and you know, you just woke up, you woke up just by the smell, I cannot stand that bitter taste. I'd like actually it's sour. I'd like the bitterness of the of the more uh, you know, 10 seconds, seven seconds into that second crack. It's, a, it's not that French roast that's, you know, almost onyx black. It's just a, a really deep ebony brown and it's just wonderful. So I roast my own coffee. Sorry, I went into too much detail on that one and probably alienated half your audience, but that's okay. Uh, and, uh, and I basically mostly do either espresso or aeropress, believe it or not. Mm. Uh, I tried pour overs, pour overs are good, but, uh, I just like the, I like what pressure does to the coffee. Mm. Um, and that's uh, that's our ritual, you know, have our machine on a timer every morning, uh, warms up for about half an hour before we get up, you know, sometimes it wakes us in the middle of the night and, uh, and it's just wonderful. So now my latest, uh, thing is, and it's taken me far too long. It's to do a, a decent rosette in my cortado or cappuccino uh, with uh you know regular milk but hey that's what a long life is for right exactly and i'm, I'm sure all the all the coffee snobs will come with with, with pitchforks and be uh, oh, yeah. calling for your head with that's right Some, somebody's <laughs> yeah. gonna yeah it, that's uh that's one of the one of the scenes of the book where the 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 romantic interest she goes yeah i don't like that uh that light coffee and i don't know if uh, you know, they didn't like her because of that but i just have to throw that in yeah, we should just be friends. Yeah. <laughs> I'll call <That's> you. Right. <laughs> Don't call me. I'll call you. Yeah. And uh, so, of course, I did want to ask you about mountain biking because it's something that uh, I'm very right. passionate about. And, it, you know, I, I don't think it's I, I don't I, I know some people think it's a, it's an exaggeration when I tell them it changed the way that I view life when I started mountain biking. But 
Well, what has been your experience with mountain biking? What do you, what do you enjoy about it? Oh man, that's another loaded question. Loaded, yeah. uh, <laughs> but, uh, I, you know, what did you say when you tell people that it changes your life? They, like they did, go, yeah. what are you talking about? Yeah. They go, uh, whatever. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I completely get you. I mean, that's, I am pressing the, I believe button because it's this piece. It's this, uh, you know, there's very few times in life that you can be alone, but with others, uh, at peace, but your senses are highly attuned. Um, you're with nature, but you're relying on technology. Uh, it's just like this, this juxtaposition of everything that just makes it right. You know, when you are out there on a trail in the middle of nowhere and you got there under your own power and you get to see the, the grandeur that's out there. And then you have to, you're in the planet's playground, right? I mean, that's, that's what trails are They're You know, it's, it's version 1.0 of roller coasters. It's, it's your endorphin machine. It's, it's, it's hard to comprehend. And it's funny because we live in Florida now, uh, which is people go, Oh my goodness, you poor guy. You know, it's just, you're not into water sports. You like mountain biking. What are you doing in Florida? But it turns out that in the Tampa area where we are, there's actually some world-class mountain biking. Uh, People correct me. They say it's off-road biking. Uh, you know, we make our very regular pilgrimage up to North Carolina and Northern Georgia to go mountain biking. Our son now lives in Colorado Springs. So, which is where we used to live. We've gone out there. And, and one of the things that I marvel at is that every day is different. You know, you, you go out, you can go up morning and afternoon and the trail is different. You can go on a cold day or a warm day and the trail is different. You can go where it's super dry or after a rain and the trail is different. Depending on your mindset, the trail is different. You yeah. can go out for a day where you're going, I want to go fast. I want to set a PR on, you know, Strava, uh, or I just want to leave all the electronics at home and try to get lost and you'll have a wonderful day. So I just don't know of any other human activity that can, that can come close. I don't know. How do you feel about it? That's a great, great, uh, I don't know if I could top that, but I think what it's taught me is to take risks and to get out to, for me to get out of my comfort zone and to push myself Yes. and the rewards. And I've, I've had my share of injuries and falls and spills and cactuses and things like that, but, yep. but I've learned from all those experiences and it's, it may, it's made me more likely to take risks, not only in the trail, but in just in life, the things I wouldn't have tried before because of those, because of getting out of that comfort zone and pushing yourself and. And uh, just knowing you can, just believing you can do something that you wouldn't think you could do, you know, weeks ago. I think that is so true. So you're going to laugh at this because uh, you've probably been in this situation, but I was on a trail. We actually, uh, uh, a lot of times when we travel, we pass by Tallahassee of all places. And there's this little place called Tom Brown Park, which nobody outside of Tallahassee knows. But it's this very pretty urban park that has all sorts of activities and actually has it's a blue trail, but it's a really fun urban trail. And one of the northern reaches of the trail actually goes through this old, these old concrete structures, and they actually have some, some, you know, 
I'm going to call them uh, drops and, you know, some black diamond features, so to speak. Uh, nothing great, nothing huge, but a couple of pretty drop, pretty big drops, some ramps, uh, things like that. And uh, last time I was there, I hadn't been there in probably a year and a half. They changed a lot of the area. They cleaned out and they cleaned out this area where you're coming on this little spiny ridge. You take a left and there's this drop. Uh, probably a five foot drop from what mm. apparently was like a, a concrete retaining wall into a trail. But it's kind of like this weird left-hand turn. So you don't have all the speed coming in to actually do the manual off it. And and you're just basically going, well, I'm going to a five foot hole. Uh, you know, let's cross our fingers <laughs> or maybe not do it. And I remember the first time I did it, I went, oh, you know, gee, I got to get down because I'm old and they don't make my parts anymore, you know, blah, blah, blah. And all the excuses that you normally had. And I went, just like you were saying, you know what? I'm going to learn to take this risk. So I walked back. I figured out my speed. I, and then I said, there's a saying in Spanish, the tripas corazón. You know, let's, yeah. just, let's just go do it. <laughs> and, uh, and I launched. And, uh, you know, it was this wonderful little uh, manual hop off it and landed. And it was the most exhilarating thing. And it probably lasted 20 seconds. But it changed my outlook for the week. Mm-hmm. Because... I actually, like you said, there's something that terrified me and I actually had to go, no, I'm going to be so mindful that this is the only thing that's going to be on my mind is mm-hmm. everything I'm going to do right for this little drop. And I think skiers or snowboarders or, you know, I think other extreme athletes probably have the same view. Not that I'm saying that a five foot drop is an extreme sport by any chance, you know, it's <laughs> not a Red Bull is not coming after me for sponsorship after doing that. But, uh, but it's our own little victories that we have to be so mindful for. And that's, I just don't get anywhere else. Yeah. It's a, it's a great feeling. And there's a, for me, just learning the sport and body position and when to, how to bend and how to lean and all those. And you, you start putting all those little things together and it, when you accomplish things like that, it's, you feel like, wow, I, it took a while, but I, I, I made that drop or I went, I took that trail without walking or I, you know, Yes. I went up this Absolutely. hill without walking it. So. Absolutely. So I got to ask, uh, you know, the big question, uh, clips or flats? I do flats. Good, good, good. Yeah. We're, we're going to get along just fine. Then it's the yeah. start of a beautiful friendship. I, I can't uh, yeah. imagine. Yeah. I can't imagine being clipped into a bike because I've, I've had my share of, Oh crap. I have to get off this bike in 0.5 seconds or I might die. So I don't want to have that extra step of unclipping and yeah. jumping off for my life. So I, uh, I started off, I mean, years ago when we first started, uh, started off in clips, uh, SPD, clipless pedals, you know, and uh, about five years ago, ended up, uh, we were living in Boston, took this very steep, rocky climb, and I had a pebble stuck in my shoe. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm falling, you, everybody's had this, you know, the, the and all of a sudden yeah. you're just falling slow motion and uh, could not get <laughs> my foot out. And I'm looking and that, you know, when time dilation happens and everything slows to a crawl and I saw this pointy rock, it's like this perfect Mm -hmm. peak that was going right into my shoulder blade. And I went, this is it. Um, This is going to be really bad. So as I'm falling, I'm maneuvering and, you know, managed to move myself so that it just like, it was a really bad bruise. I thought I was going to break my shoulder blade and, you know, I'm coming back to the, to the trailhead with my arm, uh, you know, I could barely move it. People were going, are you okay? And I went, that's it. And I went flats after that. I've never looked back. And it's, uh, 
my wife and I just, she, she, she has really, really, uh, her improvement because she, we were in the same boat, you know, both of us were lifelong cyclists, uh, clipped into mountain biking and you know, increasingly technical terrain. And when she went into that, it was, we both really, that's when we improved. So it's pretty yeah. cool. It's a, it's a big change for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. So if I've, I've had a, f a few new writers ask me for advice. What advice would you give someone that wants to get into the sport? Oof. By the way, I love the pun there, writers or writers. So uh, let's go with, uh, since you said sport, I know uh, which uh, type of writer you were talking about. Uh, you know, uh, that's a great question. I think probably the biggest thing is make sure your bike fits. Hmm. Make sure your bike fits. Uh, if you are uncomfortable on the bike, that is an indication that your bike does not fit. And I've seen too many people I worked at a bike shop when I was in graduate school and hmm. had the fundamentals of bike positioning. And throughout my adult life, that's been a, almost like a party trick where somebody's like, Oh, you guys ride a lot. You know, I'd ride a lot more, but I'm always in pain. I'm going, why don't you bring your bike over? And they do. And I go, that bike is, uh, you know, that stem is like two feet too long. Uh, your seat is too low, too high. Well, you know, it has to be a really fat seat because I, was, I said, no, actually, if the seat is, set up right you can ride on a two by four and it'll still be comfortable you know shaped the right way of course and you th there was there have been many many times where you just make some adjustments get somebody the right seat height the right setback the right stem the right rotation of the bars the right positioning and all of a sudden they're like oh this is what it's supposed to feel like this is fun and before that it was it was torture so that that'd probably be the single biggest one, you know, just make sure that spend the time to get fit by somebody who knows it doesn't have to be super expensive, but you know, somebody once told me that uh, they, they like cycling because it was the closest thing they could imagine to being a cyborg. And I went, huh, what? <laughs> they go, yeah, we have this machine that makes us go really fast. And I go, that's brilliant. That's beautiful. It's perfect. So make sure that the cyborg machine fits you not somebody else you know so it's kind of like uh running in shoes that are three sizes too big yeah that's a good that's a good uh, comparison so of course i have to ask 26 or 29 inch tires oof uh i'm gonna go uh neither of the above uh, none mm -hmm. of the above i'd say 27.5 oh, so okay. i had 26 uh for a long time i had a this is probably going way way back but I had a Titus Racer X from circa 2006 that was just the most badass mountain bike ever. And that's when mountain biking, you know, 2008 around that era, everything changed. Dropper post came out, 29 inch wheels came out, suspension got really good. Uh, disc brakes came out on their own. You know, in the last 10 years, we've seen a pretty big improvement in mountain biking, but, but it really, that was the inflection point. So, I, I rode that for a long time, probably longer than I needed to. And at the time when I went to 29 inch bikes, I'm, you know, I kind of sat in the middle of the bike instead of on top of it. And it wasn't bad, but, you know, I wanted to do something different. So I don't know if you've uh, heard, gone on the plus bandwagon yet, the plus hmm. size tires, but there was oh. a, tw so that's what I have, 27.5 plus. Uh, so I read 2.8, 27.5, 
about 130 millimeters tra uh, travel in the back, 140 in the front. And that mm -hmm. I find for my size is the sweet spot. If, if I were about, you know, two inches higher in elevation, uh, I'd probably go with a 29er because they roll beautifully, they're fast. Uh, but I like that these tires, that size, I can just make every mistake and the bike is just very forgiving. What are you riding? I ride 29 inch. I, I've always, the first bike I bought, I bought a used uh, Diamondback at the local bike shop just because I wasn't sure how much I'd be, how serious I would be, but I ended up with a 29 inch uh, mountain bike. So I, I've just always stuck to it. I just yeah. feel more comfortable on it. Yeah. Bigger is usually, I mean, especially in rocky, mm -hmm. washboardy terrain, you know, uh, you get a lot of dry trails out there and a lot of, a lot of gravelly yeah. dirt, you know, that, that decomposed granite on top of mm -hmm. uh, clay. I would imagine that's a, so a nice meaty tire on a 29 inch is probably does wonders for you. Yeah. And we have a, a trail here called Dragon's Back. That's uh, it's the trail is gypsum. It's like that chalky. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. And uh, so that places like that, I feel a lot more comfortable going, <laughs> going there. Oh, yeah. but, yeah. Yes. I think the big part is, you know, whatever tire size, tire size you choose is the, to me, the pressure is, is the last, mm -hmm. you know, the last frontier, uh, because I honestly learned something new about tire pressure and tire, you know, the, the, the specific tread and the condition of the trail every single time. And, uh, every time you think you have it nailed, uh, you don't. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's, a you know, it's. That's with a road bike, you know, you can kind of set your pressure and leave it because a tarmac is always the same. And it's but on a on a mountain bike, it's uh, how you set up your suspension and how it changes per ride. You know, one thing that I learned, which, you know, if you have any other cyclists on the on the podcast, they'll laugh at. But I realized that I needed to change my suspension settings for mm. different trail, uh, you know, make it faster or slower. And once I learned to be comfortable with that, then. All of a sudden, I'm like, wow, this is why people really love this hairy downhill that I was yeah. terrified at beforehand. Now I understand why. So it, it is definitely a learning process. And I'm, I'm still learning all that, you know, tire pressure. It's it's more for me. I, it's more about feeling like I have to get going a little bit yeah. before I can sure. make adjustments. So, yep, it's a lot of tweaks. And like I said, you, as soon as you think you have it figured out, you realize you have no idea what you're doing. So correct. But that's what makes it wonderful, you know, and then, you know, and the cool thing is only you would know because, yeah. right, you go out there and from the outside, everybody's going, this is a, you know, I've seen some of the, some of the video that you've had from some of the trails and I just go, wow, that's, that's really awesome. You know, that's what a, what a fun trail, what a gift to have that so close to, to your home. That's what I'm thinking. You're probably going, man, this rebound damping is a little slow or whatever, yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know, but it's, I think that's part of a, it's like the, uh, the ADHD, uh, perfect sport or whatever. So yeah, I love you it. always want to, always want to find new trails. So hopefully when yeah. all this madness ends, we can do some more traveling and absolutely visit some trails. That'd be great. So I do have, uh, I, I do have a couple of questions for you that I'd like to finish every conversation off with. So, okay. uh, the first one is, is if the I'm really I'm really interested to hear your answer to this one. But if the zombie apocalypse happened today, what would be your weapon of choice? Oof, the zombie apocalypse happened today. 
Hmm. I'm going to go with a McLeod. You know what a McLeod is? The trail I'm... tool that has a it has a spade and a, the, the the rake on oh, the yeah. other side. Yeah. Uh, either that or a Pulaski axe. And uh, the reason for that is they have a little bit of range. Uh, unfortunately, they're uh, what I would have to call a melee weapon in the D&D parlance. Okay. Uh, and, you know, I would have said an M4, uh, which is, a uh, you know, the, essentially the new military version of the M16. But I, I believe that ammo will be hard to come by in a mm. zombie apocalypse. So uh, it would be difficult to do. So as far as a melee, we- melee weapon, I'd go with uh, Pulaski or McLeod just because six feet uh of reach you can probably uh you know get going if it's a 1v1 uh, i could probably do okay with uh you know a slow moving zombie if it's 1v many uh i'd probably just uh you know yeah i'd, I'd have to consider a, a a better way uh to leave so probably a bad answer but that's uh you know if cost were no object uh and i would have all the uh, ammunition in the world uh i would probably go with a, an assault shotgun but uh mm-hmm. those are also you know a military assault shotgun i forget what the nomenclature on that one is that's uh that'll leave a mark oh yeah <laughs> yeah definitely so the next one is uh what was your first job Ooh, in high school i was i worked in a hospital in mm-hmm. records, believe it or not, uh, that was my first high school job. Uh, it was not a great one. I did it only for a summer, two summers. In college, I did everything from washing dishes in the cafeteria to tutoring. Mm-hmm. But my best early job was being a bike mechanic. Mm-hmm. And that was, uh, you get to meet more crazy people. I guess there's a lot of jobs that you meet to get to meet crazy people. But at least in those days, uh, you know, University of Michigan, grad school, uh, winter and summer and shop in a basement, you got to meet some really interesting characters. And it was a time when Greg Lamont and everybody else was, you know, they were superstars and there was this. You couldn't get news from on the sport uh, on the internet like we do today. So there was this mystique about it. And it was this mystique coupled with this old world charm. And and it was just one of the coolest jobs that I've ever had. And strangely mm-hmm. enough, it's one of the most practical things I've ever had because, you know, we've been on, been on a bunch of bike trips and bike rides and insane mechanicals happen and i can go i have a i have just the tool you know i have a spoon or an allen wrench and i can fix that and uh you know you'll, you can do enough to just get you back to the trail and people think you're a macgyver somehow so uh that's a that's a cheat answer but i'm gonna go with that one yeah getting back to the trailhead is can be uh you know when you're in the middle of nowhere and you uh, something happens like that it's i just want to get back <laughs> I just oh yeah absolutely <laughs> before the sun goes down absolutely turns into a big deal so the next question i have is when i try and ask every guest is was there a question that i should have asked 
Hmm. Why did you write this book? Hmm. Do you ask me that one? Uh, no, not not All specifically. Right. No. So that's a good one, though. I will add that to my list. I always try and try and add to my repertoire. So no, no, that's I always, a, see what, yeah. I, I always think why questions are are the most uh, interesting ones. You know, the hows I think are a close second because everybody's mindset is different. But, uh, you know, why are you doing this is always a, a really interesting one. So very open-ended and that's what, that's yes, what the goal very open-ended. yeah, it's a good point. So I will add that to my list. So for everyone looking to buy the Archer's thread or to find you online, where's a good place to connect with you? So, uh, probably the easiest way, easiest way is, uh, nolzamot.com, N-O-E-L-Z-A-M-O-T.com. You can find the links to everything else on my social media. I'm, uh, I am horrible at social media, like uh, most writers, I think, would admit they are. Or they, I think most writers deep down inside go, oh, my God, I, this is like, I, I want to write, but I don't want to do all the social media. But uh, in, I'm, A, learning a lot and finding out it's really fun. This is, I mean, I would have never, we would have never connected had it not been for social media. And I was just kind of poking around and going, oh, my God, somebody who likes books and is also a mountain biker, sign me up. And then, you yeah. know, you were so gracious to say, yeah, holy cow, you too. You know, it's like we, yeah. we met out of nowhere. So, uh, so that's probably, uh, the best one. And I, uh, you know, I'd love to link to this in my, in whatever links we have. And, uh, it's just been really fun to, to sort of connect and getting to know your audience. I gotta tell you, I was, uh, you know, based on the type of stuff that you read, uh, I was going, this is probably not going to be a, a great fit, but at the more I read all these, or I listened to these interviews, it was just, you know, it's like two dudes or two, two authors, two writers, two bibliophiles just kind of chewing the fat and i thought wow that's that's really compelling and and cool so i really appreciate the opportunity thank you yeah yeah thank you for taking the time and and i i know that a lot of the a lot of the guests i've had on are, are from certain genres but i have had on a few uh thriller writers and it's true uh, yes I, i'd like to talk i'd like to talk to anybody so i yeah and, no, I like and it's all types of books that is i will i will have to uh say that is absolutely right because uh you know the first time we we started uh connecting on email that was that was what i had in mind and as i went through a lot of your that the guests that you've had in your youtube channel some of them are super interesting folks i mean mm -hmm. i've actually discovered a couple of really interesting compelling authors based on that some book reviewers that i just think wow this is a really interesting take on the craft so i it's just been really interesting my goal is that when the next book is going to be on your tbr for 2023 so just watch out Oh, I hope it is. Yeah, let me know when it's when it's getting ready so I can pre-order and it's props for the word for it. Excellent. I'll let yeah. you know. Awesome. So thanks so much for, like I said, for taking the time. I really appreciate it. It's I, I love uh, these kind of chats, so it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Too.